you're the only person in the room that sees the whole picture. You've got to be the person in the room who sees the old the whole picture. Because yep. if you don't, exactly. then you got a problem. And you're constantly having to make value judgments when the structural engineer is in conflict with the architect about where to put a column. You've got to have the wisdom and the ability to sit there and say, okay, at the end of the day, this is the right place to do it. And 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 so you've got those kind of conflicts all the time. And it, you've you've got to go from being uh, an uh, an and or to uh, to you know we can get it all right. We can get the structure right and we can get the architecture right. But sometimes you're the one in the room who has to see all that and who is yep. constantly having to make those judgments because that making those right judgments is really key to getting it all right. So being in a room where all of those things are happening, I think is really, really invaluable and really understanding, you know, I, I've got to remember what the architect goal is, the architect's goal is here. And, and I, I've, I've got to make sure I temper that and I've got to manage that. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we uh, go through that. And then we devise a three-year plan potential. For our second meeting, then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. For this episode of Icons, I am pleased to introduce Bryant Folger, the chairman of Folger Pratt. Bryant is uh, a longtime uh, D.C. resident, born in Utah, but uh, came here with his father and his family in the uh, early 1960s when his dad started to work for Marriott Corporation. Bryant's family is, uh, comes from the Church of the Le- Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church. His father built the Mormon temple here in in Kensington, Maryland, and uh, he talks a little bit about that. We talk about his family, his faith, his family living on the same block in Potomac growing up, and then his company's, his father's company's growth, which he 
uh, help joined uh, after college out west in, in Utah. And we then get into uh, the evolution of the firm, his activities in Silver Spring, where he helped rebuild downtown Silver Spring and has a large, huge office project there, leads to NOAA. And then he, we transitioned into some of his other activities around the region as this company grew. So without further ado, here is my wide-ranging conversation with Brian Fulcher. So, Brian, thank you for joining me today on Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure I consider myself an icon of D.C. real estate, but I'm really honored, and it's it's nice just to connect with you and see you again. Thank you, Bryant. Well, you certainly are, and your family has a long legacy here in this time, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. So first of all, uh, you are a, the leader, and I think still chairman of a family business called Folger Pratt. Yes. Talk about your current role now. I know you've had your, spent your entire career there pretty much, and how has your role transitioned since you handed over the operations of the company to your now managed, four managing partners there? Well, it, it's a really good place to be, uh, honestly. I'm still very engaged in the day-to-day. Number one, I've got tremendous confidence in, in the four. Cameron Pratt, who is my nephew and CEO, who I've known literally from the day he was born. Brian Folger, uh, again, another nephew who I've known from the day he was born. Greg Bunker, who uh, is our COO, happens to be my son-in-law, but uh, very, very qualified and, and brings a wealth of experience and just uh, ability and talent. And then Pete Ognabeni, who's a little older, but uh, somebody we brought in a number of years ago to be our CFO. And, and they're just really talented and hardworking and very smart. And uh, it's a real pleasure to work with them. You know, a family business. There are there are benefits and there are burdens. And uh, you know, when it's when it's bad, it can be really bad. But when it's good, it's really really good. And and so, I have this opportunity to work with these wonderful people, three of whom are family, and Pete's a dear dear friend. It's really wonderful to be in a position where you're doing things that you love with people you love and people who are really talented and able. And so, it, it's a really really fun place for me to be. I get engaged in a you know, very involved day to day. Spend a lot of time on asset management because a lot of these properties are project in our portfolio or projects that I had a direct hand in, and so I've got a history. You know, like downtown Silver Spring and Silver Spring Metro, our, our NOAA headquarters, and Park Potomac, and you know some of those things. But then I also, because of my background, more on the development side, on design, like Landmark Mall, we're doing the redevelopment of that, and. I've been engaged in, you know, kind of the overall conceptual design and and mm-hmm. getting the right consultants there and what are the right approaches and attitudes and how has the world changed from pre-COVID to post-COVID and 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 so it's a really engaging intellectual and planning exercise that I really enjoy. So I kind of get to do what I want to do and I avoid the things that I don't really care <laughs> to do anymore. So it's uh, <laughs> I, I it's it's pretty fun. Pretty fun. Well, the advantage of being the chairman and you have operating people now to do the the personnel and the planning and the accounting and yeah. all the things that you oversaw before. So it's it's a nice thing to have. Yeah. So it's, it's still nice to stay in touch with people though. You know, I go on sure. job sites, I go to properties and and you know, it's 
it's great to talk to our people. Uh, you know, we, we have a culture that we've worked really hard to develop and we want to make sure that we walk the walk, if you will. So mm-hmm. but it, it's all fun stuff. Yeah. I imagine you have a bit of a visionary perspective as well. So, you know, kind of looking over the horizon for the company a little bit, I assume you and your board of directors do, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, as overwhelmed with what's happening right now and today and so what is around the corner and what is over the horizon and that's kind of a fun place to be it allows you to be a little more free thinking and 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 gratefully there are there are an awful lot of wonderful people that are out there thinking and and pondering about where the future is going to take us and so there's a lot to read and there's a lot to think about and and that's that it's a lot of fun I enjoy it. It's stimulating. It's it's very stimulating. We'll get into that a little later because I want to talk a little bit about what you're thinking about today with the with the pandemic, as we had chatted about a little bit about before. But now, before we do that, I want to get into a little bit about you, your family history, and your origins, and where you grew up, and all the things about your your background. If you could start sharing that a little bit. I was born in Utah. But my uh, my parents, we moved here when I was just five years old. Uh, my dad had been stationed in Washington, D.C. during World War II. And mm-hmm. when he was here, he became good friends with uh, a number of people, uh, uh, one family, the, fa- the Marriott family. We are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, commonly known as the Mormon Church. And the Marriott's were you know, part of that that Mormon community here in D.C. during during World War II and and following that, and so my parents became friends with them and among others, and uh, they maintained that relationship. My father, at the end of the war, went back to Utah, and he was a mechanical engineer there, designing heating and air conditioning systems for schools and that kind of stuff, and uh, wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. He did that for, as I just said, about 15 years, dabbled in real estate development in Southern California mm-hmm. uh, during that time, and then, but just wanted something different. And uh, so in 1960, uh, he came back here to D.C., was invited here by, the, by Marriott, and started their in-house architecture and construction group. And that brought us to D.C., and had they had they built hotels at that point, or are they just starting to, or what? They what had the- they had built the hotel, the the two hotels down at 14th Street and uh, the Key hotel Bridge. at yeah Key Bridge and mm-hmm. the uh, yeah. The, so they had two hotels. He built hotels for them in Philadelphia and I want to say Atlanta and, mm-hmm. I, and I think one in Texas. So they were they were very much in the beginnings of the transition from a restaurant company to a hotel company. He stayed there for two and a half years and and decided he wanted to do his own thing. And uh, with their blessing, uh, he left and uh, they we maintained a dear friendship with them for all these many years now. And then he went off on his own and and it was a very bold move. He had six kids and uh, a mortgage and. Uh, and just out of his own tenacity and his own hard work, and that's that was kind of my dad. He was uh, he just worked hard and he was creative, and he just kind of worked out deals. He did a deal with Lord and Taylor at uh, Falls Church, a building we still own. Did a 
building for computer sciences when they were just very, very early in their stages, built their headquarters building over on Route 50 over in Falls Church and just went out and found a landowner and found a tenant and got it approved. And then he was also the contractor and he just kind of eked his way to building up a bit of a portfolio over the years. So did he... See, he was a developer and a contractor from the get-go then, yes. in essence. Yeah. Yeah. He actually took the risk on taking buying the dirt and the whole thing. Yeah, he, he, yeah he'd bring in partners, investors. You know, he mm-hmm. didn't have much to invest himself. And so it was just more through ingenuity and managing timing and, you know, finding people who need who had needs and figuring out a way to get them combined and hooked up and get something done so that's that's kind of what he did he just kind of scratched and and and, you know and and we we lived very comfortably as i was growing up and so he was good at what he did apparently uh so a mechanical engineer and then got into the development business so it was just kind of a natural evolution for him then to some extent learning learning a little bit from marriott and, yeah, it was it was more yeah. entrepreneurial, and that's that was kind of his. I, I don't think the word entrepreneur really existed back in the '60s, but but if it did, he would have been he would have fallen under that label. He just he didn't have a certain set way of doing things. He just literally went out and found opportunities and figured out ways to get things done. He was tenacious and pleasant, but but very tenacious and just uh, always kind of his mind was always working and he was good at solving problems for people. So talk about a little bit about the cultural aspects of your faith and how that maybe had some influence on him and you in your growth. And uh, uh, I understand it's a very family oriented uh, culture. Yeah, uh, it it is. It certainly is. I mean, there are a lot of churches that are, and, and, uh, but, but ours certainly is one. We believe that, these relationships, these most treasured relationships that we have here are, are eternal. And so the no, the notion of family uh, is really central to, to a lot of what we do. And so we, the notion of being with family and enjoying family and loving family. And for us, that meant working together as a family. And eventually we, I live next door to all my brothers and sisters, which is kind of a whole other story. <laughs> but you know, so all of our all of our kids have grown up together. My my parents had forty eight grandkids, and they've all grown up together. And and uh, so it's there. There's a religious aspect to it, but there's a social aspect to it too. And you know, I, I've said many times, peer pressure has really negative connotations, but there's actually a really positive side of peer pressure. And my kids are kind of at the younger end of the spectrum and but for the most part they went to school together and you know all these cousins and they they were a bit of a force where wherever they went and uh but the older cousins gratefully were terrific kids and they kind of looked out for and and prodded and motivated and sometimes corrected the younger cousins and but they, mm-hmm. they it's been a really close knit group of of terrific kids that have grown into being wonderful young men and women. And though they're now living all over the country, they, they still have this wonderful closeness that comes from growing up together and having so many shared experiences. We would go on vacation together. We we're all skiers. We'd go out to Utah every spring for spring break. And, 
<laughs> we've had homes up on a lake in New Hampshire. And so we've had the shared summer experiences. Our kids would go up there and get jobs and mm-hmm. spend the summer up there. And, and so there's just, there's, we're kind of constantly surrounded by family and gratefully they're wonderful people and we love them and they're fun to be with. And so it, it's pretty easy to be close to this family. It's fun. Were your parents uh, a strong influence on that? I mean, did they have, I mean, you and your brothers and sisters were that way when you were growing up? And then even before them, did they have family that was close, your, your parents as well? Uh, they were close with some members of their family and less. Um, I think when we came here, I mean, one of the, something we did very early on was buy these lots all together in Potomac. And my, some of my siblings had lived in a, in the same neighborhood, you know, going back 40 years ago. And they, they just gravitated toward one another. They lived in the same neighborhood. Their kids were hanging out together and mm-hmm. we all just sat there and thought, well, you know, why, why not, why not really do this all, all the way? And so we found some lots that were all next to one another and, we built the homes and the rest is kind of history, but it's, it's really, it's been a lot of fun. We've, I've said That's many great. times, we've, we've, we've gone through a lot of peanut butter and a lot of popsicles, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really been wonderful. And I, is, is when you hear my kids and my nieces and nephews talk about it, it was pretty magical growing up here and we had trampolines and motorcycles and dirt bikes and, Mm-hmm. go-karts and you know all the sure. crazy stuff and it, they had a, I, i've said many times i want to die and come back as one of my kids it was a pretty they had a lot of fun That's and great. we did with them and you know we're doing things with them and so it kind of kept That's us awesome. young and kept us involved and engaged and mm-hmm. but but there's real benefit to it you see them together and there's a real love there's a real bond and and I see it now in my own grandchildren. We get them together as often as we can. And that family is very satisfying. That's great. So about four days a week, I walk. Uh, I live in Kensington. Mm-hmm. And I take a walk in the neighborhood. And two or, two or three of those days, I take a, a walk down Kent Street over on Strathmore. And then down around a structure known as the Mormon Temple Yeah. in uh in Kensington, which is perhaps the most unique and perhaps one of the largest physical te- uh, structures in the entire Washington region. And I understand your father was instrumental in developing that property. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the history of that, if you know enough about it to share. I'd oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it was a big part of our family. I mean, um, you know, my dad was uh, on his own at the time and, and acting as a general contractor and developer. And good friend of his named Bob Barker who, who actually lived on property on, I think it was Bex Hill. That is his home literally backed up to that property. Uh-huh. And the church had been looking for property and, and Bob Barker knew that. And he, he, my recollection is that he helped find the property and identify the property. And, uh, and it was owned by an old uh, Jewish fellow. And when they approached him, I, I think my, my recollection is that he he didn't want to sell. But when they told him it was for a temple, he got very excited about that. And he and Bob Barker were able to work that out. The church then approached uh, my father to get construction pricing. He knew they knew he was a general contractor here in the area, so he was involved in some of the original. You know the, the you know what are costs in the D.C. area, how to cost how do they translate? And then 
a good friend of his, uh, a guy named Keith Wilcox, was one of four architects that the church selected to each submit a design. And uh, Keith and my dad, my dad were were childhood friends in Ogden, Utah. And uh, oh, and something. so Keith reached out to my father and said, and they had a conversation about, you know, what good design is, what what works here. And my father shared with him, and Keith Keith actually wrote this in a book. That dad's idea was, look, most of the members of our church that are in the D.C. area identify with the Salt Lake Temple, which is kind of the iconic, kind of the primary temple of the church. And tall and rectangular and six spires, three at other end, the center spires being the tallest. And so Keith kind of took that and did a contemporary version somewhat of that iconic Salt Lake Temple, which is really what the D.C. Temple ended up looking like. And after he had done the original pricing, he he didn't think anything more of it. And then he was approached by an old college friend of his named Jack Oakland uh, with Oakland Construction, big construction company based in Utah. And they'd built a number of temples. And so we partnered with Oakland and another Salt Lake-based company, Jacobson, who had also done a number of temples for the church. They kind of understood how they get built and what was the process and working with the church and all that. And so they partnered together and formed a a separate company just to build the building. And so uh, that's what we did. Then I spent three summers when I was in high school working there as a laborer at the lowest rung <laughs> of, of the of the labor stack, if you will, at uh, at the Washington DC Temple. And and it's and it's been a wonderful been a wonderful thing for us ever since. So what I'm curious what the exterior material is on that building. Because it's an unusual color, and I mean, it looks like limestone, but I'm not sure. Um, a white Alabama marble, marble, and really? it's actually a little translucent. So there are places inside the building where you can actually see the glow of sunlight outside through the marble into the building. Mm. But uh, but that's just gone through a three year renovation and upgrade, and uh, it would have been open this last fall for a public open house but uh, with covid uh, that's not going to happen but th- there will be an open house the the plan is to do another public open house once it's safe to accommodate the crowds but back in 1974 when it was open 750,000 people went through it wow and that's at a time when i think the population in dc was like 2 million or something under mm-hmm. so so uh, yeah so ideally hopefully the public will have a chance to go through it again before it gets rededicated and closed off so well that's uh, gotta be a, a you know a prideful thing to see it and i imagine much of your family have had ceremonies there in, oh yeah in, yeah through yeah, your life yeah. i imagine all my, my kids have all gotten married there and mm-hmm. it's uh well not all of them but most of them so yeah but it's mm-hmm. some were married and others so but yeah that's great that's great. Great, building. So, great building. So where did you where did you go to high school uh, around the area, Brian? Just out of curiosity. I went I went to Bullis. Oh, did you? Uh-huh. Yeah, it was all boys at the time, and uh, it was more of a military prep school. There was a very military <laughs> influence there, and which I needed. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I, no, it, it it was it was it was a you know it was a good experience at. Uh, Mm-hmm. I, I learned how to write. I, I had really wonderful English teachers, and 
they really taught how to write and uh mm-hmm. which i think is a disappearing skill but uh but it's was uh, that from like third grade on or was it uh no that was uh, uh ninth, high school only uh, yeah, yeah 10th 11th 12th yeah yeah, because yeah, I think Bullis goes down into the lower school too now. Go down to it? third grade now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I I was fortunate. I served on the board there for about nine years, and, uh, mm-hmm. and it's been great to see how that school has developed. They, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. It's now co-ed now, right? It is. It is. It, it went co-ed a long time ago. My one of my oldest niece uh, actually went there and graduated from there. So mm-hmm. she was mm-hmm. part of the first class, the first co-ed class there. So. Great. So then uh, you went on to Brigham Young, which was your, your, your father's alma mater as well. So No, he yeah, he went to the university. Both of my parents graduated from the University of Utah. And there's a, there's oh, a real okay. oh, there's a real rivalry between the two. But, um, <laughs> but uh, no, I went to BYU and uh, and, you know, had a great experience there. Uh, served a mission for our church for two years in the middle of all that. Uh, went down to Bogota, Colombia and spent two years in Colombia. and. Uh, which is a remarkable experience and one I wouldn't trade for anything. You, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn, uh, you learn how to put other people's interests ahead of yourself, which for, for me, for us is a real key to finding happiness in life. So great experience. And I assume that's, that's a debt. That's kind of a duty that you have for the church. Uh, there's there's an expectation but it's you know every person has the choice as to you know if they go you get assigned you you have no choice about where you go it's it's a remarkable experience you 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 find i found myself in you know in colombia dealing with you know people i mean poverty levels and challenges of life and and that, that i just had never experienced growing up as a kind of a spoiled kid in Potomac, Maryland. And, uh, it, it was a real eye opening experience. And then you always have a companion and they, they're assigned to you and they change every two or three months, but you, you learn how to work with people. You learn how to work with people that are very different from you. And uh, how about the just, language, were you able to learn the language quickly uh-huh. or did you, oh, yeah, yeah. The, uh-huh. the, the, the church has a, uh, they call it the mission training center. They've got mm-hmm. several of them around the world, and you go there for eight weeks. Uh, for mm-hmm. me, Spanish, you were there for eight weeks, and you you learn the rudim the rudimentaries of the language, the basics, and uh, and then and and it's funny after you've been there for eight weeks, you speak better Spanish than anybody else there. So you <laughs> you you delude yourself into thinking that you're really good at it, and then you land in the country, and you have no idea what anybody is saying. But you know, it takes about took about four months and listening and practicing and you develop the ear and you expand your vocabulary and, and yeah, you get to where you're, you're very fluent in Spanish. You, 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 you couldn't go to an algebra class or a science class and understand all the vocabulary, but Spanish is a, is a wonderful language in that it's always pronounced the way that it's spelled. And so I I might not know what the word means, but I could tell you how to spell it. And, (laughs) you get very comfortable with everyday Spanish and, and Colombia, they speak a beautiful Spanish. there, really high quality Spanish. And so, uh, and yeah, and I, and I've kept that. I, I, I was the, in, in our church, each congregation is called a ward. And I've, I've been the Bishop of a Spanish congregation here in the DC area. I did that for three years and 
all the meetings are in Spanish. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's great to have that second language. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So you were in college when you did this two-year mission? It was during yeah, you college do, years? I did my freshman year of BYU, and then I went to Columbia for two years, and then went back to BYU. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have was did you have to keep the academics going while you were there, or did no, you? No, 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 no. Well, that's no, interesting. You're you're twenty four seven. You're you're working all. You get up at six thirty in the morning and you study for a couple of hours, you know, for an hour or so, and you plan your day, and then you go out and you work and you serve people and you do community service and you do proselyting and you. Wow. help with the local members and all that and you get in bed at about 10 30 at night and you're totally exhausted so no it's it's a lot it's missions are very very hard they are very very hard and and you deal with a lot of rejection obviously so it uh it toughens you it uh you grow up a lot so you've had a few doors slammed in your face <laughs> oh yeah. oh yeah yeah oh, heck yeah I can Absolutely. imagine. Oh yeah. Imagine. Columbia Columbia was a very Catholic country. Of very, very Catholic country. Oh so, yeah. Oh yeah. But 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 it was it was great. Had met a lot of remarkable people and had a lot of remarkable experiences and mm-hmm. you know, it was a, a remarkable experience. Remarkable experience. So you graduated and then did you know that you're going to go into the family business or did you have any other ideas when you left? Well, school? I actually never graduated and uh Really? What ha- Yeah, it was funny. When I got off my mission, I wanted to go in development, and there was just very little that I could study about development. You could certainly study the finance side of it. There really weren't options or opportunities, particularly there at BYU, on urban planning or architecture or any of those things. So I took classes in construction and business and Spanish, uh, just to further mm-hmm. my Spanish. And a year or so after I got home... My dad got involved in a project in downtown Salt Lake City. The Oakland family, who I mentioned before, were our partners in the construction of the D.C. Temple. They came across a development opportunity in downtown Salt Lake City, literally across the street from that iconic temple, the the Salt Lake Temple, almost a full city block. They're very strong in construction, but hadn't done any development. And so brought my dad into that. And that then resulted in a four-level regional mall anchored by Nordstrom and by another California-based department store, 2,800-car parking garage, a 326,000-square-foot office building. And so it was the first Nordstrom outside of the Pacific Northwest. They had done one store in uh, South Coast Plaza down in Orange County, Mm -hmm. and that was it. And so my dad brought me in very early in that. My brother-in-law, Brent Pratt, had already started working for my father here on the construction side of the business. My brother was just had just finished law school or was, had finished law school and was working for an, a law firm in, in Baltimore. So dad brought me in early to get involved in the design and the development of it. I worked for the architect for a while while I was going to school, but then got involved in the leasing movie theaters, restaurants. And then um, Equitable Life, the old Equitable sure. Life Assurance Society yep. of the United States, was our partner, lender partner. partner. Mm-hmm. So I got very involved in managing the relationship with that. So over over that's a about, great experience uh, right out of school. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I know. I was still in school, so I I shifted to night school, and I was working full time. And it, it was a very challenging project. I mean, oh, it, it yeah. was challenging. It, it was challenging on its own. 
particularly challenge for somebody who had no idea what he was doing, which was me. And, you know, my dad would, uh, my dad was not, uh, okay, let's sit down and talk about how we're going to do this. It'd, it'd be like, uh, let's see the, the Nordstrom guy is going to be in town next week. Will you may, you know, get the architect with them and get, get our people and just manage, manage the meeting. And then the other department store would come in and, and, and it Ooh, was, it was, boy. it was a really, really, he threw you in the deep end. Oh my, <laughs> it, it was, and I drowned a few times. It, it was a really, really hard experience, but in fairness to him, it was, it was kind of new for him. I mean, it had never done anything of this size or scale, but, but again, his tenacity, he just, you know, these, these real estate deals die a dozen times before they actually get done. And, and he just worked through every one of them, the zoning issues, the design issues, the partnership issues with, uh, with, this uh, had to be equitable. one of the first urban malls in the country then, because this is, it, urban, it was right? a very early urban mall, uh, very yeah. early. And th- there were not a ton of precedents for them. And we, we traveled around a bit and looked at, at a number of different things, South Coast Plaza down in uh, Orange County to see what mm-hmm. Nordstrom and just to get familiar with Nordstrom because we actually owned the, the department stores. We leased the department stores to them and learning how to design a parking garage. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, yeah. It, so it was just uh, and then dealing with a with an equi- with equitable life. I mean, one of the biggest real estate companies sure. in the world. And, sure. And, and it, it, it was a really intense overwhelming difficult experience but but one that having survived it 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 was a good thing the more i got involved and the more i was learning there it it became more than a full-time job i was going to school at night had two children and when i looked at the options at school there was just nothing there and so it it ended up that just kind of I, i was learning so much more by going through the development of crossroads plaza and then by the time I finished, I had two kids and time to move back to D.C. And it just wasn't an option. So I, I never graduated, which is a great regret, tremendous regret. But mm-hmm. um, all in all, I think it's worked out OK. One of my nephews was teasing me about it the other day. I said, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, they did OK. So <laughs> They sure did. They sure did. Hardly that I, but, but <laughs> all that was meant was to shut him up, which it did. Thank goodness, but uh, <laughs> but uh, hardly not in the same. Hardly in the so same. So then, so then you came back, and yeah. Uh, so what did your dad put you to work on when you got back here? You know, what, at about that time, my dad was, you know, Clayton. My brother Clayton had gotten involved in the in the leasing, uh, the legal aspect of the leasing at Crossroads, and he decided to come to work with dad and then Brent was already here. And so when I came back, I mean, the things that I'd been doing for the last three years at Utah were all development. And so I just, uh, there wasn't a lot of direction. Uh, there wasn't a tremendous amount of planning. It was just kind of given that I'd go out and try to do development. And so that's what I ended up doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So you started looking at uh, opportunities where mostly here in Montgomery County, or where, where were you? Where you most active? Well, we were based here. I, I was still very involved in Crossroads. I was traveling. I was spending about half my time out in Utah, working on the asset management issues, leasing. Equitable took over the management and didn't do a very good job, frankly. And and so we uh, again, I was learning property management. I was learning asset management. And and we struggled with that for a couple of years, and then they brought in Lendorf, so they 
had to work through the whole transition with Lendorf and, and they were much better managers, much better asset managers. And so I, I spent a couple of years spending an awful lot of time on Crossroads Plaza still. And, uh, which again was a great experience, as I said, in asset management and all those kinds of things. Was this the late 1970s? Is that when that was or, uh, or early eighties, early eighties, early eighties. Okay. And, uh, and yeah. And Lendorf was in the process of buying Tyson's they, they eventually bought Tyson's corner. And so yeah. it gave me tremendous insight into Mm-hmm. how to asset management manage something like that because they did a remarkable job there i mean they you know the story of tyson's corner is really one for the ages and uh I, all that time i'm kind of absorbing and learning from those guys and uh and and that that, that was really a, a great learning experience and then then we just started finding deals here bought a piece of property right at the corner of east west highway and and colesville road in downtown silver spring and Started a, a spec office building there with uh, with the Chevy Chase Bank people, their Manor Investment Group, sure. um, and that turned out to be the headquarters of 1.3 million square foot headquarters for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And that that you know, for a company of our size and and me not doing you know me didn't have a tremendous of work under my belt uh, you know to pull that off and to figure out the design and figure out the zoning and get the entitlements and all that. that. That was a huge lift. And again, one Steve Kaufman from Linus and Blocker was, was really sure. helpful to me during through that, that whole thing, a real mentor. And did you have a but, financial partner, Brian, on that deal? Uh, the, the Chevy Chase saving Chevy Chase bank was our partner on the first two phases Mm-hmm. And then we bought them out of the second. We 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 ended up selling the first phase to GSA. They had a program called the Opportunity Purchase Program, where they would go out and they could buy real estate, and then they could buy something. You know, they could they could expand that and end up with a headquarters opportunity. They did our deal and they did the White Flint deal with with Lerner for the national for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Those are the only two deals that I think they ever did. There was just a window in time, but it got their toe in that project. And then as NOAA became the option there, the NOAA needs kept growing. And so I'd literally go to the next property owner. Montgomery County owned the adjacent property. And we had already talked them into building a public parking garage there to support the development of our project. So I went back to the county and said, well, look, you know, Let's build that garage, but I want to build a half a million square feet of office space above you. And we figured out a way to do that. And then I went mm-hmm. to the next property owner who was a car dealer, a crazy guy by the name of Dennis Spencer. And <laughs> oh God, he, Dennis Spencer is a, whole, uh, is a whole chapter, but ended up buying that property and expanding NOAA to that to where it eventually, eventually became almost 1.4 million feet plus a 230 unit high-rise apartment project and so that and that now was a fascinating time i mean this how, the, how did how did you develop your relationship with this with uh with manor investment and the saw company just out of curiosity and, and chevy chase bank we just approached them did you okay yeah this is the mid 80s mid late yeah mid 80s and there were a mm-hmm. lot of banks that were kind of doing that kind of thing and frank saul you know had a track record of doing that and honestly, I liked them because they had a really good expertise in office, and that's that's what it was. And so, uh, worked with a guy named Jim Quinn there, who was a terrific guy. 
and yeah. just no ego. And we just kind of worked through all the issues and, and it was a really good relationship with them. And they, they well, were that, terrific. I'll transition there because that's where, how I met you. Cause I was a yes. salt company exactly. at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we actually met at, uh, what was became or was, I think, the Montgomery Court County Board of Realtors building, which I think yes. is on Picard Drive. That's how we exactly. met. And I think we, I worked for yep. the mortgage banking unit of the Saul Company. And we, I think we brought Aetna life to the yep. table on that transaction, as I recall. Yeah, right. yeah um, that, was, that was a, a building that I did while we were doing the whole NOAA stuff. And I mean, I was, I look at our company today, we've got analysts, we've got, capital markets people we have uh, project engineers and project executives and development associates and and all that and i did all that <laughs> i mean that you know i was i was the only development person in the company clayton got into development as well but uh you know we i ran the numbers i i did the site analysis i did all the entitlements i worked and managed the architects and the engineers through the whole design process i worked through the whole leasing process and negotiated the leases and uh and yeah you literally did it all back then and which is great experience there's only so much you can do but the company was very small at the time and but these were big big projects for a company our size so did you outsource a lot of the activity then that you just couldn't manage yourself or did you decide to hire and grow organically as, as a company with people? It grew organically over time. My career was mostly doing that. You know, I would do one or two projects at a time and several of them were multi-phase type projects. So you were kind of, you know, you know, a wash, rinse, repeat kind of thing. But we, I, we did that you know, up until 15 years ago where we really started to to fill out the development staff to allow us to do more. And we were, we were increasing our capital base. We were finding more and more opportunities. We had some family members joining the company. And mm-hmm. so there was a need to expand and the family was getting bigger. And so you've got to expand just to kind of help keep the family going. And so over time, we not only expanded in development, but we also expanded in, you know, property management. We we decided that we were going to manage our own construction, and we knew the more we did by way of development, that would mean more construction. We actually started an in-house cleaning company, which we did with a, you know, my best friend had grown as far as he could at Redcoats and. We're we're looking for another opportunity, and so we created Pioneer Building Services. We now clean about 30 million square feet of office space every night. A lot of this was somewhat organic. We we tend to hold on to properties. We're longer-term investors. We like recurring income. I mean, that's one of the things that differentiates us quite a bit is we are longer-term owners. Mm -hmm. We still own about 65% 65 of everything that we've developed. And so the property management continued to grow and expand because we were holding on to and building the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so they just all kind of grew organically. So you like to remain a pub, a private company. You had no thoughts of ever rolling up and, you know, anything like that as far as, or. For the foreseeable future. I think that's right. I mean, we, we've, we've looked at different options in the past. We've, 
you know, we've got partners in a lot of our projects, the Peterson family. We, you know, we did downtown Silver Spring. With I them. wanted to talk uh, about that project a little bit. How yeah, the Trulin, the Trulin family, Rob Trulin and Park Potomac, and we have sure. land partners on a number of deals. And so it's harder to roll those things up. We looked at doing a fund a number of years ago and went down the road a bit looking at a fund, but we, we just concluded that it wasn't the right thing for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it created some inflexibilities. And, and so now it's a little less efficient, but now we just, we come up with the capital on every project through a variety of different combinations. We come up with our own capital. We will, depending on how much equity we need, we'll do a friends and family raise. We've done institutional deals. We're doing institutional mm-hmm. deals. We've done EB5 deals. You know, we, we've done a whole variety of different things, but mm-hmm. the, the goal in most projects is to go into them with the idea that we're going to hold on to them for a long time. And so that influences the projects we select. It influences sure. the way we design them. It influences yep. the way we capitalize them. It influences the way we build them, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things. But we are, our, our bias is longer term ownership. Well, you know, often institutions have a, you know, a horizon that they like to meet. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily meet the objectives of the owner. So you just have to work that out up front. Yeah, and having a closed-ended fund and, you know, being forced to sell at the wrong time. I mean, just just all those kinds of things. Exactly. We like having the flexibility to make the best decisions as it relates to the property and the owners. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. able to do it. Yeah, how different different companies and different. Yeah. But since you're a family-owned business and you have a, a culture that's multi-generational, it's it makes a lot of sense to do that. Well, um, and we've had we've had a great portfolio that's generated stable cash flow. I mean, you know, the mm-hmm. Noah property has been just a fabulous, fabulous one for us. And so that allows you flexibility and sure. that allows you to be a longer term, have a longer term perspective. And so we've really benefited by by those projects. They, they've really given us the foundation and they continue to provide a foundation that really keeps this thing going. That's great. So talk about your relationship with the Peterson family and the downtown Silver Spring project a little bit more in sure. detail. I'd like to hear kind of the origins of that and how it kind of evolved. Uh, fascinating. Fascinating <laughs> for somebody like me. We we had done a number of things in downtown Silver Spring, and I was approached. We, we knew uh, Lloyd Moore, who was a developer yes. in downtown Silver Spring. And mm-hmm. Lloyd, sure, man, I, I take my hat off to Lloyd. Passed away a few years ago, unfortunately, way too early. Great, great guy. Lloyd was a real pioneer and and really started the redevelopment of downtown Silver Spring by building an office building on Wayne Avenue, and that mm-hmm. then triggered our interest in Silver Spring, which led to our NOAA project. And I got to know Lloyd through that. Then years later, uh, Lloyd approached us. He had put together a big assembly in downtown Silver Spring, including the triangle where the Discovery Building sits and part of the land where downtown Silver Spring, our project sits. And he had gotten it approved, but over a lot of objections from the community. And there was a lot of strain and stress in the community. And it was a mall, uh, two anchor stores, one on either side of George Avenue, and the retail spanned the uh, uh, George Avenue. And got it approved, and uh, and then he approached us and wanted to know if we would partner with him on it. And so we got involved uh, early on, working with Macy's, working with Penny's, and trying to put all that together. And we were kind of moving through the process with Lloyd 
Uh, we had agreed to reconfigure the mall so that it didn't span Georgia Avenue, and there was a whole process involved there. So we got involved, and we're working with the local civics and on and park and planning on getting all that approved, and and it was moving forward. And then Woody's filed bankruptcy, and when they did, J.C. Penney had an opportunity to buy a bunch of Woody's stores, mm-hmm. and which wouldn't have been a problem, but for the fact that there was a Woody's store at Wheaton Plaza. And so Penny's decided to go to, to not do downtown Silver Spring. And that kind of killed the deal. That was starting to kill the deal. And in the meantime, Doug Duncan got elected the uh, county, executive, county executive of Montgomery mm-hmm. County. Right. And Doug had famously said, the voters of Montgomery County should judge me based on what I'm able to do with downtown Silver Spring which I thought was a nuts, <laughs> a, a crazy things to say, because downtown Silver Spring, the, the, the Silver Spring community was just so, so uh, split and just couldn't agree on anything and, and a lot of acrimony and, and just a lot of tension. Very, very difficult environment. And so Doug came to me and said, look, would you guys walk away from this deal and give me a chance to do something? in downtown Silver Spring. And I said, absolutely. We, we could see the handwriting on the wall with, with Penny's and, and then with Macy's. So we let it go. And uh, he went on to go through a very public selection process and selected the Gramazians. And you know, to replicate the Mall of America, they came up with this plan called, uh, I mean, it was a big amusement park. It right. was, I mean, it was just over the top. Kind of like the Mall of America in a way. Yeah, very much like the Mall of America. And mm-hmm. they, and just, Doug was very much in favor of getting something done. I, I don't think Doug necessarily embraced what they were doing, but wanted something done. And so, uh, you know, uh, selected them. And they went through a very public process. There was, again, a lot of division. Uh, The community was very, very split over it. There were some people who just thought it was awful. There were some people who just thought, look, if this doesn't happen, nothing's going to happen in Silver Spring. And then we're going to continue to deteriorate, a deterioration which had started really in the late 60s. We were just kind of on the periphery watching all that. And then over time, you could see how the relationship between the Gramazians and the county was falling apart. They asked for $330 million of subsidies, which was just a massive amount. I mean, that's a massive amount today. It was an incredible amount 20 years ago. Right. And so we could see, again, just as an observer, we could see this all kind of falling apart. And then uh, then it revealed the Gramazians were on shaky financial ground. The Mall of America was, or the the West Edmonton Mall up in uh, Calgary, which was kind of their signature, was was highly highly leveraged, and uh, you know, so there there were all these kind of cracks in the facade. And then Doug called me. Doug Duncan called me out of the blue and said, "Look, can you come talk to me about this?" Mm-hmm. And so I went in and he sat down with him, and he said, "What would you do here?" And I said, "Well, Doug, you know, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure." But, but I know this, that nothing's going to get done until the community gets behind something here. Mm-hmm. And the problem is uh, nobody's really taken the time to help the community understand what can be done here. Mm-hmm. The community's got a lot of interesting, you know, a lot of, a lot of ideas, many of which are just not practical, can't be done, don't, don't, can't be done in, in, in the real market world. 
so I said, look, Doug, if you bring us in, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to present a plan to the community. I'm going to work with the community to develop a consensus on what needs to be done, but with a tremendous amount of influence in terms of what can be done, what, what, what really should be done here. Yeah. You know, getting, getting good design expertise and getting good consultants and all that. And so Doug thought, well, you know, that'll never work. And so he went out and talked to several other developers and, uh, and, and he kept coming back to me saying, now, what, what do you want to do? I said, well, <laughs> I, I just, I'm presenting a process, not a plan. That, that became the, the buzz phrase. And eventually he called me and he goes, okay, let's do it. And so in the meantime, uh, we had done a lot of retail. We had done the mall in downtown Salt Lake City. We'd just done a Home Depot and a Kohl's out in Northern Virginia. But I felt like we needed more retail experience and expertise. And so I went to Milt Peterson. and. Uh, you know, Milt is, is you know, an icon. I mean, if you talk about icons of Washington real estate, Milt is the icon of Washington real estate. I'm trying to get him. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, Milt's larger than life. And, and, you know, five minutes after you meet him, you're best friends. I mean, he, he's just. <laughs> Perhaps he, the best salesman I've ever met. Absolutely. He is, he is just, uh, I cannot say enough wonderful things about Milt Peters. I love him. I think the world of him. And so sweet man, he, he's, he's just awesome. And, and he's just got this force of will, you know, he just, yes. he just makes things happen that otherwise would oh. never happen. And, oh. um, yeah. And, and so, and, and I, <laughs> honestly, he didn't jump at silver spring. Uh, I, I had to, I had to sell him a bit on silver spring and, and that took a while, but eventually Milt came around and then he, he put Jim Todd mostly in, in charge of this, Jim, you know, wonderful, wonderful guy. He was the president of Peterson and just, just a gentleman and, and all kinds of experience, Reston, developing Reston and all that. And, uh, and just a great guy. And so Jim and I worked together and Milt was still involved, but Jim was kind of the primary and we sat down and kind of hashed things out with, with Montgomery County. We insisted on a process, not a plan. It, it wasn't really based on a plan. It was based on 22 acres, some broadly stated goals about what we wanted to accomplish. I kind of made, you know, Doug agreed, look, we're, we're not, the purpose of, the, the real estate is complicated enough. We're not really here to fix every social issue that could exist in downtown Silver Spring. We just need to renovate downtown Silver Spring. And that was a tall enough order. Before you get yeah. into the details, yeah. I understand that, uh, you know, a fellow that I'd met for years before, Walt Petrie, developed a project, a vertical mall. And I think that was around the same time or maybe right before your project got underway there. Before. Talk about the influence of that situation, because I understand it it quickly went downhill at that property. uh, Well, that property, in, in fairness, that project was always meant to, you know, the formula for for those kinds of centers, uh, you know, factory stores, the formula for those was to go on the periphery of suburban malls. Right. And I think Walt's notion was, okay, we're going to put uh, a discount center next to the American, you know, the, the, the Gramazian project, and they would be mm-hmm. complementary in that. So Walt went ahead and got his done, and the Gramazian project never happened. And so Walt was sitting there on his own without the the power of anchor stores there and 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 those kinds of users and i think and so that project had a tough time they they had a parking garage that was really really difficult 
the county designed the garage, very small footprints, very steep slopes, just not conducive to a retail parker. It didn't feel safe. It was a bad garage. And Walt, in fairness, didn't have the support of the of the regional shopping mall that he was expecting when he did that project. So it uh, city place, as it was called, had a, had a tough time. Had a tough time. It was open we, when you when you started, right? Yeah, you yeah your project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, we we worked with them to kind of reconfigure part of their center. We relocated their loading docks because they were on our main drag. Ellsworth Drive, and we relocated them to a spot behind the mall between that and the back of the American Film Institute, which we put into the old Silver Theater, which was mm-hmm. part of our redevelopment. So, yeah, so we worked closely with them. And, yeah. So how was the land assembled there? Was that all mostly county-owned, or what, what, what was the situation there? Lloyd Moore ha- had assembled most of the ground, either through purchases or through contracts to purchase. And then when the county stepped in, when, when we stepped away collectively and prior to the uh, leading up to the, to the Grimazians coming in, the county then took over all that land and all those contracts mm-hmm. and bought all those from Lloyd. Interesting. So the county had it, it under contract, some of it, not all of it, but, but they, you know, they had eminent domain and. And, uh, you know, they worked through the assemblage. And so they put the site together effectively. Lloyd kept the triangle where Discovery ended up being and ended up doing his own deal with Discovery on that parcel. And then but the county had everything else, including the old Silver Theater, the old shopping center at the corner of Colesville in Georgia. They had a civic building, uh, the old armory that was on the site. They had a couple of parking garages on the site. And then it was a lot of smaller little pieces that were owned by a variety of different people. McDonald's, there was a gas station, and there was a bunch. It was just all kind of junk. It was a mess. A lot of it was closed. A lot of it was just not occupied. So how did you divide up the task between you and the Peterson Company as far as who did what? Well, you know, a lot of it was kind of based on what we each did. I mean, it, 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 even even you you have to expand that to the county. It's it's you know what we agreed on with the county is look, the public sector does some things better than the private sector, and mm-hmm. the private sector does some things, or the public, you know, vice versa. The private sector does some better than the other than the pu- public sector, and so we we kind of said, look, you know, let us do what we do best, and county, you do what you do best. You can raise capital. You can go to the state and help raise money there. You can help us with the entitlements. I mean, there are things that you can do. You can help us with the environmental cleanup. You can assemble the ground. Uh, You can finance and build parking garages. But at the same time, the garages you build, as an example, they are for office parkers. They had the Silver Spring parking lot district. And Mm -hmm. virtually everybody who parked in there were not, we were office users. And Office users, they park where they have to, not where they want to, and they park in the same garage every day. A retail parker has a very different approach. And so we had to get the county to say, look, you'll you'll finance these garages, but we're going to design them and we're going to make sure that they work for the retail. So there was there was this very fair and very rational conversation early on who should be doing what as between us and the county and then between us and Peterson. Peterson had the more relevant experience on retail leasing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Tom Maskey, who ran retail Tom. for them, yeah. Tom took over great the guy. retail leasing. Uh, I, I, fabulous guy. Great guy. Don't don't tell him I said that, but he's really a great guy. I, I love Tom. He's great. <laughs> I was on the phone with him two days ago. So they took retail leasing. I took primary lead on entitlements and getting getting the county, getting through the planning board. I took the lead, but Jim Todd was with me as well. Doug Duncan agreed, uh, you know, going back to the whole process thing, we had to get community support and we had to do that really carefully and thoughtfully. So Doug put together a committee of about 30 citizens, civic leaders, business leaders, um, civic association leaders, religious leaders. I mean, just a real cross section, real interesting group of people. And Jim and I took the lead together on how do we work with them. Uh, We brought in Gary Bowden, who was a great architect with RTKL and great planner. And we worked with this community group. First of all, just to help them understand what the options are and what could be done and what would fit on this. What's the appropriate scale? How do we accomplish? You know, we we set out very early on. The, the first meeting was really funny. We had a meeting with these 30 people and they all come, you know, they, they had sued one another over development in Silver Spring. Some of them were good friends. Some were just absolute enemies. And I mean, it, it was just a really interesting group. So we sit down the first meeting and uh, we said, okay. What I want to accomplish tonight is I want to agree on what we are trying to accomplish with this project. And I think that what we're trying to do is we are trying to restore and rejuvenate downtown for the benefit of the Silver Spring community. And, and by saying that, I differentiated ourselves immediately from the Germazian project because they were trying to be an entertainment center for the right. whole East Coast. Right. And as soon as I said that, you know, all of a sudden kind of the tension goes out of the shoulders a little bit and the jaws got a little less tight. And I said, if we can just take care of the half a million people that live within a five mile radius of this site, this project will be hugely successful. Mm-hmm. And that, and everybody said, well, okay. I said, everybody in favor of that? And they all said, well, yeah, we're in favor of that. And I said, okay, the way we're going to do it is we're going to have uses here that will attract you and everybody else in this community here over and over again, regularly, frequently. Mm-hmm. So we'll have probably movie theaters. We'll probably have restaurants. restaurants we'll probably right. have a grocery store. We're going to have a bookstore. And above all, the great sign of a local community-centered project is a hardware store. And I said, we're going to do a hardware store. So those are the five. Sure. And those, those form the basis of everything else. Anybody, is everybody okay with that? And they all, everybody raised their hand. I said, okay, meetings adjourned. We've just had. <laughs> Two votes where everybody in the room with all these disparate ideas and opinions and views, you all agreed. Let's celebrate. Let's end the meeting right now. The meeting literally lasted 15 or 20 minutes. Wow. And that that to me was the pivotal meeting. And because they they could see that with fresh eyes and a fresh approach and something that wasn't as hindered by everything, the history of Silver Spring. There was room for agreement. And and, yeah. yeah. Did Jim Todd talk a little bit about their experience up at Gaithersburg with the Washingtonian site at all in the project? No, 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 not too much. The the last thing that Silver Spring wanted, it's easy to do comparisons. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that Silver Spring wanted was something that somebody else had done. 
Okay. Um, you know, I learned early on, I, I showed some similarities. I remembered a meeting showing some similarities, you know, things that done in Reston and, and it's mm-hmm. fabulous. I love Reston town center, mm-hmm. but you could just see this pushback. Anytime we mentioned anything about Bethesda, you know, look what Bethesda <laughs> done. Anytime you say that, you just go, yes. you know, and, and you learn really early on that this had to be uniquely silver spring. And so we just had to kind That's of interesting. wipe that out. Now we, as developers, we were looking at those models. We were looking at those press. I mean, we were looking at what, absolutely because why because, wouldn't federal realty come over there and do what they did in Bethesda in Silver Spring? Yeah, I I don't know who Doug talked to when he was talking, but I I, I think it was a matter more. It was less us winning, and it was more we were the only people left standing because <laughs> okay. downtown Silver Spring was rough. It, I mean, it looked it, it was looked, it was awful. <laughs> yeah. It was awful. It was absolutely right. awful. Well, you had a huge investment there, of course. So you wanted to preserve what you had. We were and motivated. Your, and your office workers were looking else. for places to go eat exactly. at lunchtime and all those things, right? Well, and 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 as a real estate developer, I could, uh, I you know, I grew up here locally. When I went to Bullis, if you got detention during the week, you had to go over to the Silver Spring campus on Saturday. So I'd, I'd, I'd been to Silver Spring. <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah. I, but when you look at it on paper, you can't beat it. It's inside the Beltway. It has two sure. exits on the Beltway, Colesville, Georgia, as opposed to Bethesda, just has one. Mm-hmm. It's got Metro. It's got 16th Street going downtown. It's got East-West Highway going to Bethesda. And it's vastly underserved. I mean, there were just no goods and services there. And so you, you start putting all together. And that's how I sold Milt on it. Look, don't, don't. Don't don't think about what you see here. Think about what what really exists here, and and just think about how this list of of features stacks up against any place else. You could argue that your success there stimulated his motivation to go after what he did in Prince George's County at oh, National I don't, yeah, Harbor. I don't know. I, I, Potentially, I, yeah. You know. Milt Milt is a Milt Milt is a big picture guy. And, and yeah. a delight to work with. I've, I've told people that we'd be having a meeting and you'd be, you'd be working on, you know, some challenge, some issue. And, and all of a sudden Milt would fly into the room and, you know, like in a whirlwind and, you know, what he has working on and would kind of walk him through it. And immediately he'd throw out like 10 ideas, mm-hmm. nine of which are nuts, <laughs> but one is really, really good. And then he'd blow out of the room again, you know, and, and, he was great. I mean, he just has energy and creativity and tenacity and just, uh, and so the the first time I met Will Peterson was at the closing table and he looked at me, this was an office building at Pharaoh Fair Lakes. Yeah. And so he looked across the table because I had done business with his attorney, Bob uh, Dilling and, Uh and all these guys, you know, uh, uh, David Cheek, who runs Meridian was the developer of the project that I financed, which was, he was, David was uh, Milt's office development guy in the late, late eighties. And of course went on to start Meridian, yep. his own company. So I looked at, Milt looked at me and he said, you know, he just signed the documents. He said, John, this is the largest office building I've ever done. I've ever financed. I said, really? He said, yeah, this was a big one for me. I said, I'm excited for you. And he just had this, you know, little kid, you know, attitude. And I said, and he was, you know, 
in his late fifties at the time. This is 30 some years ago. He's now in his eighties, I think. So um, just, you know, just like a little kid. And every time I ever saw him again, he was like a little kid. He was always, he just had this, this energy to him that was unique. So anyway, he he is a great guy, and I'm I'm honored now. I'm on the board of at Peterson, and that's uh, oh really a couple of, yeah. I've done that for a couple of years. It's really been a great experience. I mean, they're a great company, and and Milt has done a remarkable job. It's it, he, his projects are great, but he has built a fabulous, fabulous company. Great culture, great people, tremendous financial wherewithal. I mean, they're just a terrific, terrific company. Well, he had some troubles there, and he had to sell a lot of oh, properties did, yeah. in the in the you know in the early nineties. He did. He did. We man, have, he's, we could, man, he's he's worked through it. Well, it's interesting. Your company and his have an interesting similar you know synergies and similarities in a lot of ways because you're both family businesses. So it's interesting. Yeah, and I I think that's one of the reasons that 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 you know he they asked me to be on the board was you know kind of that similar picture and they've been great partners they they have been absolutely terrific partners and downtown silver spring is one where i still spend a lot of time there's a lot of asset management going on there and we're just getting ready to do a refresh there and they have been i couldn't think of a better partner than peterson that's great so another milestone that you've accomplished and over the last few years is you mentioned the family earlier the trulin family Mm-hmm. And the first time I met them was also in the late 80s. And uh, they had a property actually in Arlington, which is just, mm-hmm. I think, just yep. north of the Keybridge Marriott, as yep. I recall, yep. that I went and met with them on that site as a financier, perhaps help them with equity. And then they also talked to me about their site on 270 in Potomac, right at, at the northwest corner of Montrose Road and and I-270, which yep. I've forgotten exactly what they called that project at the time. I'm sure you Fortune probably Park. Fortune called Park. Fortune That's Park. It. Yeah. Fortune Park. Yes. So we yeah. sat and they had dreamed of doing a regional mall on that site, as I recall. And we talked about it and they were talking to yeah. department stores and everything. We were looking at financing it at that point. And this was the late eighties. And then it just never happened. So talk about how you started that project just out of curiosity. Well, we'd known Rob for a long time just through construction. Truland Electric and Folger Pratt would work together before, and we'd we'd known Rob, and we just had ongoing conversations. We knew he owned that property, and he and Brent Pratt would talk every once in a while, and and Rob had looked at a variety of different things there, and we started to talk seriously with him, and and when when they started to look at the ownership structure of that land, it was such that the taxes on any transaction would be absolutely horrific. And so, you know, Rob was out talking to different people. And I think one of the differentiators for us was we kind of understood the family tax and and, and all that. And so we helped them devise a strategy to kind of get around, you know, to manage the tax burden of all that. So that that was kind of, we helped them solve the tax issues on that property. And then, you know, we just kind of continued conversations with Rob. The, the the Potomac master plan was was going through a revision. And so we got engaged with him on that a bit and how to organize the site. And so it just kind of evolved over time. And the more and more we got involved in the project, the more comfortable I think he felt with us. 
and I think he realized he needed us. He he also had aspirations for long-term ownership, which again is part of our profile. I think that was a big part of it. And so we ended up doing a joint venture with him and we made an investment in the land and then we continued to then invest in the entitlements and, and all that. And so it, we've just been building it out. We worked with EYA, Aiken Young and Todd, Bob, Bob Young and Todd, who did, they did 150 townhomes there on a portion of the site. And so we had to coordinate with all them and they're a terrific company. And I, I think the world of Bob. And, How was and what so, was the vision for the project to start with? I mean, as you were master planning it, I mean, what what was the thought process there? Pretty much what you see. I mean, we 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 envisioned it as mixed use. We we saw it really a primarily uh, an office project. I mean, we were more focused mm-hmm. on the office, a little bit less than the multifamily. Bob was going to do Bobby Young and was going to do the towns, and we could just see kind of a very nice community, a, a, a real true community with single family, you know, with, with residential, with residential for rent, with residential to purchase on, in, in condominiums. We were going to do more condos back then originally, and then a certain amount of retail to support all that. And then primarily office as it evolved, you know, the office has been the more difficult part to pull off in Montgomery County. We just yep. haven't seen the job growth and and so we're actually in the process of converting a couple of the office building pads to multifamily mm-hmm. uh, that's done very well there. The, you know, the vision was a, a real community with a variety of different residential types and retail and office space. Well, I look at, at analogous uh, sites like that and what's happened. So, for instance, there's some examples in Montgomery County or Kentlands. Yeah. The project that Lerner did in, in uh, on Shady Grove Road. Uh, yeah. The name of which escapes me right now, but it's a pretty big project. Uh, Falls, yeah, Falls, Falls Grove, Falls Grove, Falls Grove. Falls Grove. Yep. That's it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you looked at those? I assume when you were kind of master planning your site, though, did you want to try to be analogous to them, or did you have a different thought process than they than that than those? Well, I think uh, I don't know. I you know you you distill a lot of things from from a lot of different influences and. You know, that's I, I love to tour properties today still. I love to see new things. We knew that we had our own off ramp from 270. That was kind of a differentiator. We had 270 exposure. That was a differentiator. We knew we had to do mixed use and we knew we had to create great ground level retail to support the office and the re- and the, the residential. And so we just saw the, the strength of, of the combined uses. And not to pick on any the the Tower Oaks project across the street, yes. where mm-hmm. they didn't have the kind of amenities where it was just a, and and that was because of the zoning it was it was strictly an office park. Uh, we had done a project up off of Blackwell Road, off of Shady Grove Road, and and the zoning didn't allow a hotel, wouldn't allow some of the retail that you'd need to support the office. And we very much had the vision that. We had to have something other than just an office park, and we had to have a mix of uses there, and we particularly had to have retail to support both of them and good quality retail. Are you in the? You're not. A, you're in Potomac in on on your site, but you know the yeah. the other sites you talked about. I think you're in the city of Rockville, aren't they? Or at least one of them is. Uh, I think that's right. And again, you know, thinking evolves. You know, the the one up on on Blackwell Road that was actually in the county. 
and it was and it was in the life science zone and they wanted right. so much to focus on life science that they didn't right. allow anything else within the zone of any significance and mm-hmm. so you've got all these scientists bright well paid who got to get in a car every day and go someplace to have lunch and and you know you just look at the parking lot of that Falls Grove shopping center that the learner did during you know at lunchtime you can't find a parking place because there are no other amenities around there and so it, it kind of defeated smart growth it, it defeated you know reliance on transit or reducing the reliance on cars and you know it again well-meaning unintended consequences and so we had seen all those things and mm-hmm. and you know i had leased space up on blackwell road and knew the challenge of you know, I've got to put a deli in the building because there aren't any services here for our people. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, knowing that we could do better than that, that's kind of what led to Park Potomac. Interesting. So you had lessons, lessons learned there oh, to, yeah. to get that project done. Then. Yeah. So any other interesting projects? You mentioned the Landmark Mall you're doing now. Anything else that's going on now that are interesting that you'd like to talk uh, about? We're doing a lot of things. We just delivered 325 units on Capitol Hill right at 13th and E Street, where we bought an old Safeway building. We had done the same thing in Wheaton, where we bought an old Safeway building and tore it down, built a new Safeway. And then there in Wheaton, we built 486 units on top of that in a high rise. So we replicated that on Capitol Hill. We just opened that. We, we just started leasing on that about three months, four months ago. We've got a, apartments uh, under construction uh, that we deliver this spring in Union Market, right on Florida Avenue there right across the street from Trader Joe's. Beautiful project, really cool project. Part of that was the rehab of an old uh, warehouse. And uh, it's a three-story warehouse. And uh, Hickok Coal is going to take the top two floors of that building for their new offices. And it's it's got these really cool old skylights that, that we've rehabbed. It's got brick exposed on the inside. I mean, great space for, for a creative tenant like, like Hickok Coal. Uh, we're building 300 plus units in Eckington that we'll deliver this spring right next to the big Nomad Park there, right on the bike path. Just a really beautiful project. We're building in White Flint right now. We broke ground on 300 plus units right on uh, right on Nicholson Lane, a stick built mm-hmm. project in a market yep. that's dominated by high rise, counter punching a little bit there. We're delivering 350 units, 325 units in Salt Lake City. Really? In uh, May, a uh, really cool mm-hmm. project at the southern end of Salt Lake Valley, looking north right next to a brand new world headquarters of a software company. We'll break ground down on I Street between the baseball stadium and, uh, and the wharf. We'll break ground there this summer, late fall, or some, summer, fall. We expect to break ground on a project, the Oarsman Ford site on uh, next to Montgomery Mall. We expect to break ground on that this year. We have a 400-unit high-rise project in downtown San Diego in uh, Maker's Quarter that's fully entitled now. We've gone through the entitlement process, and we're just in the process of raising capital for that right now. Landmark Mall is is you know really remarkable project. Um, How did you get into that deal? Just out of curiosity. Well, uh, we got into that deal. We developed a relationship with Seritage. Seritage is the company that one Sears. of the spinoffs, Sears right. spinoff, mm-hmm. yep. where they're trying to create value and uh, on existing sites that they own. And so we got into uh, a relationship with them in Southern California. 
when we open an office out there. And we've been regularly looking at and we're working with them on a number of sites in Southern California to redevelop either as a multifamily site, as a build for rent townhomes. We're, we're getting into that business pretty heavily. Yeah, you know, just depending on what's right and and you know for each site, but they're they're generally very well located. They've got good road access, they've got good visibility. All these sites that have had these either standalone Sears stores or part of a mall. So we got into a whole relationship with them, and then Seritage owns a piece of about a third of the landmark mall site. Right, sure. and they've been working with Howard Hughes, which owns the balance of it, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they brought us into that, and and we uh, we were able to bring some local sensibility to it. We felt like they were trying to over densify the site; that the the increased density wasn't really creating increased value because of the increased costs associated with that. We kind of read the tea leaves as to where the county, the city would go in terms of a TIF and financial support. And we felt like the density was counterproductive to that. And we knew that Innova had an interest in that area. And so uh, we stepped in again with local knowledge and sensibility and credibility with the city. Uh, We had just finished a a 400-unit apartment project uh, in just on the south side of Old Town. So we had a good rapport and good relationship. We had taken that through entitlements and developed relationships and, again, Mm -hmm. credibility. And so it was just kind of the perfect storm. And, and we were able to step in and address the Howard Hughes issues, the Saratoge issues, the, the city issues, and bring in Innova. And now with Innova, it just kind of makes it a more real project. And Innova is going to do a billion-dollar hospital on seven mm-hmm. or eight acres. And we'll do about 1,500 dwelling units, some small office. And we're trying to figure out how much retail but maybe a couple of hundred thousand square feet of retail that will then support and, and really create a place there. And, and right on 395, 10 minutes from the new Amazon headquarters and with a sure. tremendous amount of density all around it. It's kind That's of the great. Silver Spring story again. There's, it's, it's the hole in the donut and, and we'll be able to fill up the hole. Interesting. One of your senior partners there, uh, Pete Agnabeni. I actually yeah. met, I actually met him Originally, when he was with the West Group in Tyson's Corner, when he was there, he also worked uh, either before, I think before that or maybe after that, he was with uh, the Mark companies in uh, in Alexandria also for a while. And I met him there and I guess he had some relationships in Alexandria. I'm guessing he may have helped a little bit in that process there, I'm guessing. Yeah, you know, it's, as, as always, it's a team effort and... and uh... But it, you know, we're able to come with, uh, and uh, you know, we we've got a long term attitude which Seritage has, uh, yep. which we we like. It's a mix of uses and figuring out how to integrate all those. We've done some big projects like this before and how to organize them, how to phase them. There's a TIF involved. We we've done that kind of work before, particularly in downtown Silver Spring, Silver Spring. working with the county. Sure. So you know, we we just we kind of check all the boxes. And, and great. the personalities worked out. And so it's, we, we already had a relationship with, with, with Seritage and a good relationship. And so 
it just uh it's you know everything just the stars got aligned and it's great because because alexander they really need this the west's end yes you know that there's they, they feel a little neglected it's almost like silver spring again you know compared to bethesda you've got old town and now you've got amazon the west end i think there's a real opportunity to really create a wonderful place there and a sense of community there and really build the the sense of pride in that community and really give them something to be excited about and you know, like in downtown Silver Spring, the you've got Colesville and George Avenue. And so all these people that are driving through there, they're just driving through there. They're not driving to there. And so mm-hmm. when we did downtown Silver Spring, we kind of reclaimed the downtown for the community. And it's become the heart of that community in a very real way. And Landmark can, I, I think, gives us the same opportunity to do some really cool things. We're, we're, we've got some really cool ideas about public spaces and and Good. things to animate them and activate them and, and really create a sense of pride, civic pride there. So we're, we're having fun with that one. That's great. So in 2014, you transitioned from your CEO role and promoted Cameron, your, yep. your nephew, to uh, role and uh, discuss your company's philosophy about management transition. Often family-owned businesses are hierarchical. Was this was there a process involved in this? Oh my, yeah. I mean, we started twenty years ago. Cameron was a student at uh, Harvard Business School, and he took a class in family business, mm-hmm. and realized they had an entire department at HBS that does nothing that other than study and consult with county businesses. So, or, I'm sorry, family businesses. So, Cameron found out they they had a seminar up there, a week-long seminar for family businesses. And he uh, convinced us, Brent, Clayton, and I, that we should go there and do that with him. And uh, I went kind of kicking and screaming, not because I wasn't interested in it, but I I was up to my eyeballs on downtown Silver Spring, honestly, at the time. And But we went there, and that was a real eye-opening experience. And, And it it really opened my eyes to two issues. One was governance, that, that I realized that we actually had a company and we had a couple of hundred employees and, and we needed to really spend more time on the company, on culture, on just we, we, needed, we, we needed to do a much better job of governance. Uh, we'd been very fortunate. Things had gone very well, but, but not, for, not for any real planning on our part. We, we needed to spend more time on governance. And then the other issue was succession. And so after that, that was a great week for me, it, it, for all of us. And it really got us thinking about things. It got us talking about things. And we didn't necessarily agree with all of them, and, but, but it began a process where we really started to talk through this. And we'd always had this notion that our kids were going to come to work for us. Well, what's the basis for that? Are we going to be just the employer of last resort? What kind of qualifications should they have? Because we're not we realized that we couldn't sacrifice the the well-being of the family for the well-being of a couple of members of the family so we started to think about what are the qualifications what are we looking for what what should we Clayton and Brent and me what should we expect of the next generation and what do we offer the next generation and what does that generation expect of us and what do they offer us and so it just created a whole dialogue and we continued to consult with the family business group at HBS. And that led to a whole evolution that literally took 15 years to kind of work through in terms of 
how do we structure ourselves? We kind of restructured ourselves. I became the managing principal. Clayton became kind of the CFO and, and Brent became kind of the COO. But that was kind of an interim step. And we brought in Pete Ognabeni then. Uh, we did a search and uh, found a lot of really qualified people. Pete fit us from a culture standpoint. And so he was a great addition. Cameron had come on board by then. Cameron had gone to work for, you know, had worked, you know, had, had worked for some other companies. He came on board. And so all of this just kind of began to evolve. And we started to look at, you know, again, how we were running the company and what skill set did we need in management. And Cameron and, and Brig and Brian have just done great jobs of really stepping up and really assuming leadership and taking leadership and developing relationships within the company, really embracing the, the culture and really expanding that. And so it's, it's been a really easy transition. And they've, Cameron particularly has brought capital markets understanding and awareness and that, you know, you've got to have capital in order to build and to grow. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and so he has brought a sensibility that, that I never really had and that's allowed us to really grow and expand. And as we grow and expand, it, it becomes, you know, we, we study, it's the flywheel. It's the, it's yep. the, it's the Collins notion. And that flywheel has really taken off for us. And, and so we're able to attract really great talent. We're able to find really good deals and have good deals brought to us. And we're able to attract the capital that we need. Mm-hmm. And we've expanded now geographically to where we can now be far more nimble when it comes to, you know, where do we allocate capital? Uh, we're sure. not just focused on DC. And if DC is having a hard time, we can't, there's not much we can do here. We, we've got capital that says, look, we love DC, but we've invested all we want to invest in DC. Where else can you take us? So, the the flywheel concept is really really relevant to us, and it's and it just continues to speed up. It's interesting because you had said that you were doing when you first started, you were doing two deals at a time, and that's all you could manage. And yeah, it, it seemed like you had this kind of will to do your own thing and not you know kind of grow the company and have overhead exposure and everything else yep. until a certain there was a point, and obviously there came a point. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it, you know, the, listen, I, I look at, you know, I remember back in the good old days, you know, I mean, the overhead was very low and, and the profits were, were fabulous because we owned most of the project. We, we were able to capitalize them ourselves, you know, on the equity side, you know, those were great days, but, but the world really shifted dramatically in, you know, the late you know, late eighties, early nineties. Yep. I mean, that, you know, it used to be that we could borrow 85, 90% of the cost of a project. And when institutional money came into real estate, the cap rates dropped, the returns got narrower. And then you also had the financial, you know, the, the financial world in upheaval. And we went from 85, 90% loans down to 60, 65% loans. Well, now all of a sudden you've got to write a bigger check and, and do we really want to concentrate all of our capital into one or two deals? And so right. the, the need to bring in partners and now we've got to present ourselves. I was really comfortable investing in myself, but now I'm asking other people to invest in us. And how do we, how do we look? How do we appear? How do we mm-hmm. function? Do we have something that we can really 
convince people that we, you know, we, we really have the scale and the ability to do these kinds of things. And so that shift in availability of capital and avail- availability of leverage, that really is the turning point in this industry in many respects. Sure. So we're now in the midst of another turning point, perhaps, in the industry. And I want to talk a little bit about the yeah. pandemic. And uh, it's changed the business maybe indefinitely but permanently in some respects. Who knows? Yeah. But how do you see it affecting your operating businesses and the markets where you invest and develop? That's a big question. Uh, good question. And one, honestly, we're, we're still trying to, trying to understand. I mean, we have quite a bit of office space. We have a million square feet of office that we're in development right now, or redevelopment, the Discovery Building. We're building a 380,000 square foot building in Tyson's Corner. And we, uh, we just bought uh, 1,900 Gallows Road uh, a year ago. And we're just rebranding and redeveloping all that. So, you know, what's the future of office? Well, I, I think that has changed. I, I don't think, you know, this remote work thing, uh, I'm glad it's gone on as long as it has in one respect in that, you know, for the first month or two, it was pretty cool. You know, it was mm-hmm. kind of nice working from home and no commute and, sure. and uh, you know, wearing your sweats all day. But the longer we go on, you, you start to see the, the failings of that, uh, the lack of connectivity with people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really hard to onboard people and build trust and, and build relationships. It's hard to build culture and, and enforce and really, and really push culture. Some of the younger people are getting concerned about lack of FaceTime with their supervisors. And what does that mean for promotions? And what does that mean for bonuses? Just the lack of synergy, just running into people literally at the water cooler and what are you working on? And, you know, so, so we've realized that it's not, it's not perfect and it's, it's got its issues. And so uh, what I expect is some kind of hybrid going forward where there's going to be, we used to call it telecommuting. Well, I think it's going to be remote working and gratefully technology is supporting all that Zoom and, you know, you and I are talking face to face and, and that's pretty darn good. That's better than it was seven or eight years ago. So there's technology and there's things like that, but we, we still need the face-to-face contact. And so I'm, I'm expecting some kind of hybrid model where, you know, one or two days a week, you can work remotely. How is it and, affecting your development, though? What are you thinking about as far as, you know, space, well, you know? Well, I, thought we, we had a conversation with a large tech tenant about uh, one of our buildings a few months ago. And, you know, we asked them the very same question. What are you doing? I mean, you're a tech company. You guys are kind of leading the, the charge mm-hmm. in terms of teleworking and all that. And their response was that we think 20 to 30% of our workforce will be working remotely at any, any given moment. But we're also seeing that we're going to go from 160 square feet per person to maybe 240 square feet per person mm-hmm. because there's a concern about being too close to one another. And so the net result is that it's about the same amount of square footage. Interesting. But it's, but it's mm-hmm. a smaller headcount. Uh, in our building in Tyson's, I mean, we're going to touchless bathrooms. We've increased the efficiency, the, the effectiveness of the filters in the HVAC system. We're looking at systems that, you know, we've looked at, uh, we've looked at hydrogen peroxide misting systems. We've looked at at ultraviolet. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are out there, but we're really focused on making sure that these buildings are healthy and, and all that. But it also comes down to how the tenants are going to use it. Hoteling. I think there's going to be some pushback on hoteling. I don't know who sat in this chair before I did. I'm, I'm reluctant to share a workstation with somebody. So I, I think the, 
I, I think we're a long ways from figuring out exactly what it's going yep. to be. Uh, mm -hmm. We've heard a lot about a shift from the urban areas to suburban areas. I'm not sure there's going to be a big spoken wheel. I, I, there are only so many tenants that are big enough to have multiple locations within a city. I think we're going to be working really hard to find and strike the right balance between connectivity and separation and, and social distancing. So I, I, I think there's still a lot to be said about, a lot to be figured out about that. And, and I think it's going to vary from company to company, I, I, different companies and the way they function. I think you're going to be a wide, see a wider, just a, a, a varied environment as we go forward. Mm -hmm. You'll continue the mixed-use development that you've been doing, though. Pretty much, you're not going to change the mix as far as your yeah. I'm I'm a little concerned about office <laughs> in the future. I, I am concerned about the demand for office. You know, we we keep hearing, you know, tenants want shorter-term leases, and and I can yeah. understand why they say that. But you understand from a capital market standpoint, you know, it costs as much to build the space out for a five-year tenant as it does a ten-year tenant, and that cost is dramatic. It's a hundred and it, and foot. the changeover cost. Yeah, the, I mean that's. You know, we we were primarily. I was primarily an office building developer. I mean, that's what that's that's what yep. I did. And we're now we're doing more and more multifamily. We're still doing right. a lot of office, but we're doing more and more multifamily. And and you know, the trade-offs between the two. A, a great a fully leased office building is awesome. I mean, it's generates tremendous cash flow. It's a fabulous, fabulous thing. Multifamily. You know, the 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 returns are very very tight. They're very very narrow. But the cost of losing a tenant is so dramatically different between the two. And mm -hmm. for office, um, you know, for, for an apartment, there's always a market clearing price for an apartment. That's sure. not always the case for office space. Much more liquid. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and office, you know, sometimes you could, I mean, you, you can't cut the rents low enough to attract. If there's no demand, there's mm -hmm. no demand. And so they're two very different profiles. We understand them both. We deal with them both. We've been successful with both. We we won't concentrate all in one. We we like the benefits, the complementary benefits of both of them. So besides the pandemic, we've seen social changes accelerate as a result of yeah. several incidents over the last year or so. Oh, no kidding. How is Folger Pratt adapting to the diversity challenge and more broadly ESG issues in general? Yeah, I mean that's uh, you know that's an evolving world as well. I mean, I I'd like to think that we've always been a really good place to work. That we've always been a place where people are treated well. I mean, I I, I think we've got a very uh, we got we've got a great team. We have a absolutely fabulous team. A lot of the issues that you know when they've come up socially, I've gone out and and spoken to some of our employees. You know, when the, the Me Too movement came out, I sat down with some of the women in our company and, you know, what are, are you experiencing these things here? What, you know, what's been your experience within the industry? What's your experience here? And, and gratefully, uh, you know, what I've gotten is, you know, very positive comments that they feel like it's a very fair place to work, that uh, people are respected, they're treated well, they're given opportunities. You know, that's one of the benefits of a growing company is that you can provide ongoing opportunities for people. So, you know, all of those things are relevant and important. Um, and, and so they're, they're all part of, of being a successful company. We're, we're in the business. We, we've got to attract and retain the talent we need to help us accomplish our goals. And, Have you and developed so a diversity program internally at all or anything uh, structured? 
uh, no, uh, because we've kind of, we've always had that, uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> Historically, it hasn't been so much a policy. It's just been an attitude. We, we want to hire the best people. And, mm-hmm. and so we've always had a pretty diverse workplace. Construction's been de- been dominated by men and, you know, continues to be, but we're, you know, we, it's great to see inroads there. Property management, we've, uh, we've got an awful lot. Our, our property management company is very, very diverse. And, and it's great. It's, and they're, they're wonderful people. And I mean, I mean we, we've just got a great team. And, and it's, really been, it's really been gratifying. You, you go to our annual events and, and just to see the diversity and the number of people that are there and the smiles on their faces and the mm-hmm. energy they bring to the company and the, the, the excitement they express about working for Folger Pratt. And it just feels really, really good. But, you know, it's, it, it requires, you know, ongoing diligence and effort and, and mm-hmm. that we do, but, but it's, uh, it, we've always been, I think a really nice place to work. That's great. So relationships are key to our industry, as you know, yeah. other than family and colleagues who, who, who've influenced you over the years, in, most in your career, either from public or private sectors, you've mentioned several key names in our conversation thus far of people like Milt Peterson and Doug Duncan, et cetera. But anybody else come to mind and people that have influenced you? Uh, I mentioned Steve Kaufman early. He, he was a real help. He was one of the principals at Linus and Blocker and he's been great. And then Barbara Sears, she's just steady as she can be. She's just absolutely terrific. You know, I've got a lot of friends in the, in, in the business. Uh, Doug Furstenberg, I think the world of, a lot of people, Bill Marriott, the, they've been friends for a long time, and he's always been just very kind and 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 uh, just you know a terrific guy uh, and a, and a great business leader, a great incubator of talent. I mean, the the people that have left Marriott to go to other places and do what they do. I mean, his the 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 influence he's had on so many companies and so many so many industries just by virtue of the way that he's nurtured and trained talent. So, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of really good people. Mm -hmm. Without disclosing secrets, share some stories about your favorite and maybe not so favorite experiences and any lessons you've learned from them over time. Oh, boy. I've learned that, you know, the real estate industry has, has really become an industry driven by capital, driven by, by financing and by, by, uh, I can't forget that we're still a, a bricks and mortar, sticks and bricks kind of business. And the buildings we build have to be well designed. They've got to be well built. They've got to be well maintained. They've got to, they've got to function. They, they've got to be efficient. They've got to be attractive. They've got to, they, they've got to work. And I, I fear that we lose that a little bit. We we sometimes rely a little too heavily on the architect when we're the ones who've got to live with it when the project is over. And the, the benefit for us of being long-term owners is we've been able to see how these buildings do indeed function and how does the end result compare with what the goals are that we set at the beginning and 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 really focusing on the design. You know, on multifamily bu- buildings, they, you know, the architect spends so much time 
focusing on the exterior, on the elevations, but you lease these units from the inside out. And so figuring out how to get the flow of an apartment right, getting the windows in the right location, not, not as it relates to the outside, but the inside, just sweating those kinds of details and just really making sure that the building is a great building. Uh, those are, you know, I, all the experiences I've had, they, you know, so many of them kind of come down it, listen, every project, when you're done, there are always things you miss. There's always something that you didn't anticipate, but, you know, learning from those and, and remembering those lessons and then applying them going forward. You know, we, we have a series of uh, core values and one of them is we constantly strive to learn and improve. And as I've said many times, I have absolutely no hesitation stealing somebody else's better idea. None, no hesitation, but it's that, it's that kind of mentality. How can we improve? How do we, how can we do better? How can we, you know, how, how can we make this a better building, a better street, a better uh, mm-hmm. environment? Um, and, you know, as the work, as the workforce gets tighter, as, as, as unemployment keeps dropping and dropping and dropping and getting tighter, you really do have to create a place that helps companies attract and retain talent. And, and we just have to be constantly thinking about that. Mm-hmm. It's not just a financial exercise. It's not just about making the returns. It's it's not just that. You've got to really, really sweat the building. It sounds like from what you just said that they're more than just your company that means something to you. And obviously your 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 faith and your family mean a lot to you. Yep. You've been an active in community in the community with board memberships and real estate organizations and voluntary. Do you participate in this to stay visible in the community or do you find personal satisfaction or both? Both. Yeah, both. I mean, it's um you know, we've been very fortunate. We've been very blessed. We've, uh, we, uh, you know, I've had a great life. It's been fun. And there are a lot of needs that are out there. There are people that need help. There are organizations that need help. And, you know, I'm still very involved in the business. And so I did, you know, there's only so much time. Our church takes a certain amount of time. I'm the, I'm the bishop, uh, the ecclesiastical leader of a congregation of young single adults between the ages of 18 and 31 in uh, Montgomery County and Prince George's County, Southern Montgomery County, Southern Prince George's County, about 200 people. And, uh, you know, managing that takes about 10 hours a week. And, but it's, it's a great experience. These are young adults in a really important point in their lives and they're starting careers and they're, you know, starting relationships. And many of them are a long ways away from home and working with them, encouraging them and, supporting them and that's great doing them out sometimes and <laughs> you know, just, what you're doing there is what I, why i'm doing what i'm doing with this to be honest yeah, with well, you because that's the exact demographic i'm aiming at with this with this podcast and doing this sharing this with yeah. the community and try to inspire young real estate professionals I, it's well it's a you, great industry it's worthy of of inspiring people to get involved in it i mean we we are city builders and and you know, I love living in D.C. because I think D.C. is such a phenomenal city. Great streets, great neighborhoods, great communities, great buildings. And 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 I'm very proud. Of and great people. Influence. Yeah, and great people. And, and yeah, for the most part. <laughs> but, it's interesting, it, you know, every, yeah. per, every interview I've had, almost, 
that's the one thing that people come back to is this is a place, a great place to do business in the real estate yeah. sector. Whereas, you know, Ray Ritchie, for instance, said, you know, he manages, he has uh, overseas properties in New York, in uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco. And he said, Washington is 10 times better to do business <laughs> than those really? cities. He said, yeah. it's just a different culture here. Well, it's, I, you know, when I think about friends I have, a lot of them are competitors. Yeah. You know, but, but we're friends first. I mean, I, you know, and, and, uh, and I, I, I really admire that. And I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, it's it, when I can call somebody like Tom Bizzuto, who I, I think the world of, and, and Tom and I get together, you know, pretty COVID's had an impact on it, but, you know, we get together every, every six months or so and have lunch or have dinner. And, he has been a wealth of advice and counsel and, and wisdom for me. And, and Milt Peterson's the same way. And I'm amazed at how open they are. And we share ideas and observations and we're family businesses. We are exactly, we have a lot of the same sensibilities. Doug Furstenberg's a great guy to talk to. Um, yeah. Charlie Nolson. I mean, I, you know, there's just a lot of people. All of all of whom, except Milt, I've interviewed for this podcast. Yeah, so. uh, yeah. Uh, Bob Kettler. I've had some really interesting conversations with Bob. Bob. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's it's there's there's just a lot of really good people, and and I'm just amazed at how how open they are and and how willing they are to share, and not just not just successes but failures. And you know, I, I mean, it's uh, I just. Just, I, re- I really admire an awful lot of the people in our industry, and I admire the way they do things. I admire the people they are first and foremost, and admire them for the job they've done and for the careers they've had. So, mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of really really good people. So, what advice would you give your twenty five year old self today, Bryant? <laughs> you know, today's world just you know it's so different from from when I was twenty five. Again, going back to kind of capital and and so you you still really do have to understand the financial side of all this and how it works and 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 I would I'd certainly get a job somewhere as an analyst and and really learn how to understand the numbers side of real estate not just the mat, not just the the dollars but also the numbers you know you see that a building that's more efficient is going to be more profitable and so you start to understand how those numbers, you know, how you make those numbers work. You 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 can't make numbers work just by dry by pushing the rents fifteen percent higher than market. You really have to learn how to understand cause and effect and the relationships between all these different components that come into developing real estate. So you you, you certainly have to understand that. But also as a developer, you're developing a project by committee. You've got an architect, and the architect is focused on the architecture. The the structural engineer is focused on making sure the building will never, ever, ever fall down. He'll never get a claim. You've got the civil engineer who cares about uh, stormwater and you know those kinds of issues. You've got a guy, the person who's going to lease the space, and they're really focused on on that. And you having as much money available to lavish on the tenants as you possibly can. And you've got the zoning people and you know all the things that they're looking for i mean you've got all these different people with, bill bill hard used to call it like being a puppet master 
That's uh, absolutely. Important. That's you are. You're the puppet master, but you you're the only person in the room that sees the whole picture. Or mm-hmm. you you you've got to be the person in the room who sees the old the whole picture because yep. if you don't, exactly. then you got a problem. And and you're constantly having to make value judgments mm-hmm. when the structural engineer is in conflict with the architect about where to put a column. You've got to have the wisdom and the ability to sit there and say, okay, at the end of the day, this is the right place to do it. And 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 so you've got those kind of conflicts all the time, and it, you've you've got to go from being uh, an uh, an and or to uh, to to you know we can get it all right, we can get the structure right, and we can get the architecture right. But sometimes you're the one in the room who has to see all that and who is yep. constantly having to make those judgments. Because that making those right judgments uh, is really key to getting it all right. So being in a room where all of those things are happening, I think, is really, really invaluable and really understanding, you know, I, I've got to remember what the architect goal is, the architect's goal is here. And, and I, I've, I've got to make sure I temper that and I've got to manage that. Well, you had uh, the unique experience when you were in college to be yeah. thrown right into yeah. that mix yeah. yeah that's right <laughs> in a large right. project which is yeah. amazing actually yeah so you yeah had, it, uh, at the end of the day you're signing personally for a construction loan on that project well i'm i'm the one who's going to make those decisions because i'm managing <laughs> that risk and yeah. and and i'm gonna i i i'm i've got to out of necessity i've got to be really objective and i've got to be really clear thinking and i've got to make those value judgments throughout the entire development of the project well, this has been a great discussion, Brian. I have one more question, and it's my usual final question. <laughs> if you could post a statement on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Treat others the way you want to be treated. That's great. Well, that's that's a great one because it's so important. <laughs> it's the golden rule, right? Yeah, it really is. And uh, we seem to have... I don't know. This last year has just really been, uh, you know, it's the it's COVID, it's Me Too, it's Black Lives Matter, it's an election that was as divisive as any that I've ever seen, and you know, culminating with an unprecedented, shocking attack on the Capitol. And uh, my goodness, it's, what does it uh, say about today? I'm not a tremendous fan of social media because of the anonymity and that people hide behind to express mm-hmm. opinions that are really uh, angry and mean spirited. Inflammatory. And it, mm-hmm. it just, just, it's, I, I'm not a fan of it. And uh, I, I just, I wish there was a little more civility in the world. I wish there, and, and there's a lot of it, but, but there's, there's a lot of it that's not, that, that gets an awful lot of attention and, and it influences people. It, it certainly has an impact and an influence on people. And so it, it, you know, for me, it, you know, for me to be able to go to work and work with people that I admire and love and, and respect and enjoy being with, man, I'm so, so grateful for that. And you add to that that we're doing some really cool stuff and doing some really fun things and, some really, really satisfying things, rewarding things. It's, it's, I'm a very happy guy. That's great. You're blessed. And that's great, Brian. I am. I am. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. We really appreciate it. It was a great talk. Oh, it's and good to see you. you again. Yes. Have a great day now. All Take right. care. Thanks, John. Bye-bye.
So we just listened to Brian Folger of Folger Pratt, who uh, is quite a story coming from uh, growing, born in Utah and then coming here as, as a youngster with his father who built the Mormon temple here in Kensington, Maryland, and, and uh, became a developer almost from the get-go, coming to town and became successful after working for Marriott for a little while and starting his own company. And then uh, Bryant uh, himself going off to, to Utah to college. And then his dad pulls him off out of college and says, hey, I need you to help me build a regional mall in downtown Salt Lake City. <laughs> well, he's 21 years, 20 years old. It was pretty quite a story, I thought. And then on to his, you know, his career here in Washington and through all the things they've done and the family office, family business growth, and then the spectacular transition to his current leadership, going from one to two projects a year to just a multitude of projects, not only here in the Washington area, but out in California and Utah. It's pretty spectacular. So I've, without my my normal sidekick, uh, Tom Amos, is joining me now. Hey, so my biggest takeaway here with um, Mr. Brian Folger's recording was it was very impressive when he starts going where you ask him about projects that they're actively involved with. And, and he just, he just keeps going. And uh, I've actually was involved with construction of the Lumen at Tyson central, which is an apartment building that actually the parking garage ties into one of their office properties over there in Tyson's near the borough that, that they're, they're working on. And so when he was rattling off those projects, I was, I was waiting to hear that about that one that I, I know pretty well. And uh, it wasn't until later in the recording when you guys were talking about the pandemic impacts that he actually mentions that one. And it, it just kind of put into context for me that how much work that they're doing. And so I looked at, I, I, I did some comparison with, with a couple of the other guest companies that we've had on here. So Folger Pratt, According to their website, they do 15 million square foot of commercial real estate that they manage uh, with 210 employees. Boston Properties is doing 48 million with three and a half, almost four times as many employees. JBG Smith is is managing just over 20 million square footage with about 1,000 employees. So that's that's almost three and a half times of the amount of um, space that they're managing per employee uh, versus versus JBG Smith. And and it's even more impressive when you think about the context that, you know, they're doing a lot of their own construction. Really wild when you think about how much work they're 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 covering. It is interesting. Uh, and they have projects in every jurisdiction here in the Washington area, just about. And then they're out in Utah and California with offices and projects in each of those markets as well. And as you point out, as you pointed out earlier, they do not only development, but they do construction as well on each of their jobs, on a lot of their jobs, not all of them. just depends on whether they're in a joint venture where uh, there's another construction company involved. But typically, they do the most of the construction as well. It's quite an ambitious task, but they've got four people running the company now, and uh, all very capable and well-trained. So, yeah. It's 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 interesting. Yeah. And 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 that was the other big topic there was the family owned business that they've gotten. 
according to uh, Family Business Center, the average family-owned business lasts 24 years in the United States. 40% survive the transition to the second generation, and only 13% are successfully passed on to kind of the third generation. It was really great hearing Brian talk about the family's involvement and how they've dealt with transitions throughout his father's career to him and, and, and on to the next generation. I think it's somewhat of a testimony to their, to their cultural and their religious background to some extent. There's a certain camaraderie in the family, in the Mormon faith that is, I think, exemplary to the point where Bryant lives next to his siblings on a, on a block in Potomac. And all their nieces, all his nieces and nephews and children all grew up together. So they know it's they know each other so well and and just have this real unique family uh, feeling. And so, you know, your statistics showing, you know, the 40 percent second generation, only 13 to third, they actually accelerated, in my mind, with the transition down the family line. So. His father started with, you know, maybe a few large projects, and then he he accelerated a little bit. He and his brother or his brother-in-law, Bolger and Pratt, and then his children and his children and nieces and nephews have just exploded the company. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's amazing what uh, what they've done and the culture he's created there, which is an important feature. And they talk about values and everything else. It's really important to them. And so they're right at the cutting edge. I asked him about not only the culture, but you know their ESG, their social consciousness, and their and their employee retention rate and everything. And he said they're they usually rank pretty high in the region for that, which is an important feature. And I think it's really that family culture that they have. So you know you're, you may not be actually a member of the family, but they like to have their employees feel like they're part of a family, in yeah. essence. Well, it was a really good one, and uh, that's all I got today. All right. Well, listeners, thank you very much for uh, listening once again. We'll have another one in, in another two weeks, so stay tuned. Thank you very much for your time today. <laughs>